0: Three. On the Riabu Podcast today, we're going to be speaking with yet another highly successful business executive to find out not just how he managed to become successful, but to answer that critical question that we always ask here on the Riabu Podcast, how do you get your invoices paid on time? Our guest is Mike Grundy, a self-made... Uh, Uh, entrepreneur who started a chemicals company, a specialty chemicals company from scratch, then achieved revenues in the order of 100 million US dollars before selling half of it to a private equity fund about six years ago. Mike is still on the advisory board of Amazon Papyrus Chemicals and joins us live from Hong Kong talk about exactly the sorts of things that we're always concerned with here. Mike, good to see you. Thank you so much for making the time.
1: Thank you, thank you.
0: So tell us first your story, and incidentally of course I'm always particularly interested, as to how it is that you chose a name like Amazon Papyrus Chemicals.
1: <laughs> okay, well a quick, a quick sort of background, <clears throat> you know my, my, um, my training for some crazy reason is in the pulp and paper technology. Not many people go to university to study that. So I I worked in paper mills in England and then I worked for uh, an American chemical company supplying to those pulp and paper mills. And in 96, that took me out to Singapore uh, and I was running the region over here. And I absolutely loved it, Um, it was great. Uh, And then in 98, our company was acquired by an American company, another American company and, and everything changed, um, it, it was very unpleasant. The culture, the culture changed, the work ethic changed, they overpaid for the acquisition, so that put pressures. Uh, so in 2000, we decided, my uh, sales director and I decided to leave and have a go on our own. So why did we choose the name of Amazon, Amazon Papyrus? Well, Papyrus is Egyptian word for paper, so that's pretty obvious. Amazon was because we had absolutely nothing. We had no money, we had no customers, um, and we wanted to make ourselves sound big. So the the, uh, Amazon forest is massive, the Amazon river is massive, and we felt that those two, that word made it sound like we're a much bigger company than we really were.
0: And it wasn't because Jeff Bezos uh, was in any way involved?
1: Uh, no, no, no. He 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 wished me luck at the beginning, but uh, <laughs> uh, and and they've never they've never knocked on our door and questioned us. Um, but no, it was purely purely the image we're trying to make was that we were much bigger than we were. Um, to the point, I remember talking to a customer in Thailand where we gave certain th- we showed him certain things, we showed him production plants in America that uh, was from a supplier of ours, uh, and he actually said guys, you're much bigger than with the companies we normally deal with. And then when I said, I'd say, no, no, we're not that big. We have to then scale it back down. And say, no, no, we're actually only a small company. But that, that, was, that was why. Um, and uh, yes, that's how we chose the name. But uh, we didn't the other,
0: the other voice you hear chuckling is uh, Simon Littlewood, who accompanied you on part of that journey. So tell yeah. us about that, that journey from zero to $100 million in revenue in what is obviously a very short space of time.
1: Well, it's, it's not that short. I mean, it's 20 years. We've just had our 20-year anniversary. We just had a, a huge Zoom meeting, 450 people on it, and, and uh, celebrations and a party. And everything. Um, but if we go back, um, the in those early days, it was certainly very tough. I mean, we had we didn't even really have an office. We were using an old printing works, um, a little bit of space in the printing works in the far end of... Hong Kong. It actually had two offices, um, but there were four people. So whoever whoever got in last in the morning had to actually sit in the corridor. I mean that's, that's where we were. Um, certainly not a place you could take a supplier to. If a supplier, if a supplier uh, was visiting us, we went to a friend's office uh, over the road, um, got there 15 minutes before the meeting, had the meeting, Looked out the window to make sure he had gone, and then walked back to our our pretty rubbish office um, in, in in Hong Kong. I mean, I think that just shows you how how small we were and how little we had. Um, we we build a business plan. We build a business plan showing the next three years um, of of revenue, what we thought would happen, um, and that proved to be very accurate. We never. We never moved more than 5% away from that business plan, which sounds great. Sounds like good planning, but actually it wasn't. If you look then behind that plan, um, what we thought would happen is that the customers we knew well would come come to us very quickly because they trust us, we have a relationship. In reality, that didn't happen. In reality, because they knew us so well, they really put us through the ringer. We had to go through every single... Uh, step of the sales process with no shortcuts. And on the other hand, customers we didn't know were more open. they actually saying, well, there's some young upstarts here. Let's give them a chance. So it was totally the reverse of what we expected. Uh, and as a result, we came out with pretty much the same uh, numbers, but not the way we expected that, that plan to work. The key thing we missed in that, in that plan, or we, we underestimated, was the expenses. So revenue margin held up well, we were way under on expenses. You
0: mean you were way over?
1: <laughs> well way under budgeting or way over spending whichever way you want to look at it um, and that, that caused of course um, rapidly we got into cash problems. Um, we, there were many times where my partner and I just we just couldn't get paid. We had to wait uh, until people, uh, uh, our customers paid us, um, and as we moved on, we were growing, we were growing nicely. Um, the P&L showed that we were making money, but where's the cash, <laughs> where's the cash? Uh, and that was the constant problem, you know, every month we're making, my P&L shows I'm making money, but there was no cash.
0: Can um, you describe the product to, to us uh, more vividly? Uh, how, what did it look like when it went onto the truck?
1: Oh, well, our, our, our product, I mean, what we're, what we're selling is, is chemicals. Um, the product, though, what we're selling is really the service and um, support. So we're a problem-solving company. So we're going into our big customers' pulp and paper mills, helping to understand um, their systems, their processes, so that we can then help solve problems in production. If we can improve efficiency by 2 or 3%, that's worth a lot of money um, to them. So you're
0: a services company, as opposed to what one might initially think when we think of specialty chemicals is barrels being shifted onto a truck. You were a, an IP company in a sense.
1: It, we are we are a sale, I would really say we are a sales and service company. Um, if the, our customers these big pulp and paper mills, you know these these projects are two, three, four hundred million dollar capital invested products uh, um, processes. So. Getting the most efficiency out of those is vital uh, and we're bringing our expertise to the table um, along with the chemicals to help solve the problem. I, I mean, I have never found a good analogy. The, the best I can think of is if you're unwell and you go to see the doctor, he will take some samples, he will do some tests and then he'll recommend the medicine and then medicine is really our chemicals and we're doing that process. And then afterwards, the doctor says, well, I don't want to see you every week or every month. I want to make sure that you're um, staying healthy. I may adjust the treatment accordingly. And we're effectively doing that with the pulp and paper mills. So that, that's, that's our business.
0: And so when you then didn't get paid and you started to see the hole in your cash flow statement, was it as simple as saying, I'm going to stop giving you medicine? I mean, is that, um, to use your doctor analogy, is that the way that you try to solve it?
1: Uh, no. Um, we, we're a bunch of salesmen. At the end of the day we're a bunch of salesmen. So the way we try to solve it is to sell more. And, and, and the more we sold the, the faster we grew and the more desperate we got for cash. Um, and you know I like to think that I understood cash flow before um, and I clearly I didn't.
0: What were some of the things that you tried apart from outselling the costs, so to speak, uh, outpacing revenue growth, uh, rather outpacing cost growth through additional revenue. What else did you try?
1: Well, main, mainly what we were trying to do then is, and, and then I look back, it was a mistake, <clears throat> was was controlling the cost side. Um, and, you know, one of the things clearly, clearly we underinvested, a, uh, under-invested in was the back office um, and particularly on the finance side. So I think we, at that stage we had just really a, a fairly low grade accountant um, who was just putting figures together, but there was no advice. Um, no, no added service. If you like to those figures, it's just given me, here's, here's my figures. Thank you very much. I've done my job. Um, so we were, we were very weak, I think on the back end of the company. Um, and uh, so that was one of the things we did as I say was trying to control that cost, which I think with hindsight was a mistake. But, um, I think, it, but cost
0: management is important, isn't it, Mike?
1: But, um, it is important, but not to the point of it's if it's strangling the company. So we were trying to solve the problem, I think, in the wrong way. Uh, and then I think so that I think we're now probably sort of about three years into the company, uh, the company's life where, you know, we were doing fine. But this cash problem was constant with us. Um, And that's when I think, I I don't even know how I came across him, but I met Simon um, and asked for Simon's help um, on helping to understand where, where is the cash? Um, You know, I didn't, I didn't really, I think at those days fully understand even working capital. Um, And Simon came in and did some work for us, um, which really sort of opened our eyes um, to start really thinking about what are we doing with our receivables? Um, what are we doing with our, with our inventory? What are we doing with our payables? Um, I we hadn't watched the, particularly the receivables strongly enough. We're dealing in countries like um, India and uh, China, where the tradition is to hold the money until you absolutely scream. Um, and I think we hadn't we hadn't watched that close enough.
0: All right. So I, Simon, do you remember where you met Mike?
2: Um, I think we met through somebody else in one of your competitive companies. I think it was GE, but yeah. I could
0: be wrong. Yeah? And, and so that that problem that Mike just described of not having a grip on uh, working capital, I mean, if you're in sales, then chances are you're not going to be terribly concerned about those things, well, right?
2: Well, the thing, you know, the thing that we always say is that growth is great, but if you don't understand the relationship between working capital and growth, you might find that you need more working capital, not less, when you grow. Um, yeah. That's a very common issue. And it's the reason, of course, why most startups go bust. It's not because they don't have customers. It's because they don't have cash. Yes. Yeah.
1: I mean, I I don't remember much of what Simon said. (laughs) (laughs) But I remember you did say something that has absolutely stuck with me. And and, uh, I hope you don't mind, Simon. I've repeated it many, many times. You said, look, if you go to a customer and you negotiate your price, and you also negotiate your payment terms. When it comes to the time of payment, if they said, well, I'm not going to pay the price, we agreed, you would argue very strongly that you must maintain that price, we agreed on it. But you don't argue as strongly on the payment terms. If they say, well, I'm not going to pay you in 30 days, I'm going to pay you in 60. He said, too many companies accept that. And he said, both of those are hard lines that you should hold. Um, And I I say, "This is we're going back to something like what, uh, I don't know, 16, 17 years, and that that stayed with me, and it's something I repeat to the sales force even today, um, to try and get that discipline in.
0: Awesome, and we'll we'll explore those things uh, further in a minute. But for those of you listening, um, and you know, you might also wonder, well, what else did Mike try? Um, so, Mike, did you, for example, send uh, legal letters demanding payment? Did you threaten to turn off the medicine? Did you, you know? G- thump your fist on the table with your customer and say, Hey, we we desperately need that money coming in. What else did you try?
1: No, I'm, I'm a very, very nice gentleman. So I wouldn't do that. Um, what I did do is I personally went to the customers who holds the purse strings, who's making those decisions. And normally it's the accounts department. So I got to know the accounts departments in the various customers. I took them out for lunch. Um, I remember uh, one a lady and one of the customers in the Philippines said, I've never been taken out uh, to lunch before. <laughs> um, but after that, I could phone her up. I had her phone number. I could phone her up personally, ask for the payment. Oh, I'm sorry, Mike, I'll make sure that's done today. So I tried to build a personal relationship with the people in the accounts team who had their hands on, 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 that, um, on that wallet. And that, and that proved successful um, for us. Um, I mean, I also went to the extreme. There's another customer where they, they, they weren't paying. I, I'm, I badgered his office so much, they gave me the owner's uh, mobile phone number. Uh, and I badgered him, and uh, he was surprised I'd got his number. <laughs> he, did, he did pay. Um, but at that point, I sent our guy in and I said, yeah, you remove our equipment uh, from that site. We don't want to work with them. Um, so we, we've been fairly, I think one, once we started to understand this side of the business, um, we became much stricter on how we operate and, and, and who we deal with. Um, so as part of our process, when we're looking at customers, we do look at their, 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 their record and their financial performance, um, and we're trying to deal with the top tier, the first or second tier customers, not the third tier customers. Uh, so
0: Simon, is that one of your, was that one of your pieces of advice as well? Take the uh, finance people out. Well,
1: in I, I, this was quite a long
2: time ago. I mean, it, you know, I've heard some really great things. I mean, first of all, the ownership from the head of the company. I mean, you were the, the head of the company hmm. and you personally took ownership of whether or not the invoices get got paid. Then you went to see um, the people within the customer who actually were in charge of that and you got to know them personally, you had their contact details and where necessary, You had the contact details of the owner as well. Um, And then you taught all that to your sales force. I mean, all of those things strike me as being really important and very typically lacking in small companies where the focus of the leadership tends to be very much on the innovation that you're selling, whatever it happens to be. Um, And what I very often find is that companies try and control receivables but the owner still stands back and is aloof he tries to do it he or she tries to do it through the mechanism of the accounting department or the sales force or whatever it is hmm. so the first thing and the first thing is the level of ownership at the top um it strikes me yes. as important now, Mike, you
0: did say that you're too much of a gentleman to badger people but you use that word yourself uh, how did you strike that balance between the discomfort of Demanding the boss's mobile phone number the discomfort that people might also feel those listening to this podcast In calling the accounts department and inviting them for lunch. I mean, uh, you know, that might be uncomfortable for some who uh, You know, the finance department has never been taken out for lunch You may have never taken out somebody for lunch. How did you overcome all of those?
1: Well, uh, can I just go back to something Simon said I I don't necessarily agree what what Simon said, you know I think what you what you just said is more relevant for a larger company. Here we are a small company. And literally, if we did not get paid, I could not pay salaries. So mm-hmm. now this is number one on my table, number one on my priority. Um, so I must, I must get this sorted out. Right? So um, it, you know, there's other people doing the other things, you know, some where I, I switch from being a salesman, if you like, in terms of trying to get new business, my priority was to get the cash in. and And it's that first three years the company were, we, we could have died. I mean, I can't put it any clearer than that. We, we, we could have died. Um, come back to your question. Um, I'm sorry, I, I, I have no inhibitions. If someone owes me money, I have no concerns. Um, and I will, I, will, I will be polite, I will be a gentleman, but ultimately I will, I will drop that <laughs> and become quite forceful. Um, we have not actually had to take anyone to court or anything like that. But no, we, we ultimately, um, we will just cut off the supply.
0: Which you also mentioned that in the end, you asked your staff to remove your equipment from the site of the CEO who you had called on the mobile phone. Yes. And, yes. and once again, because, you know, one of the things that Simon frequently mentions is the difficulty in getting salespeople to see the bigger picture about working capital and the, the need to bring in money rather than just pursue the next, uh, the next order. So how did that feel? How did you overcome that? How do you get your salespeople to overcome that
1: compulsion? Okay, so, so what I've been talking about so far is those very early days. Um, and uh, and it's sort of, um, uh, it's an education. We were going through an education. And um, I mean, I've described many times for the, the company that, it's almost like a, a child growing up. We were like children in, in many ways. And then we became teenagers. Uh, and then we sort of, m- maybe we've graduated. I still don't think we're, we're finally there. We're still learning. Um, but as the company got bigger, um, then of course we put systems and processes in, and became more professional, became more, I suppose, institutionalized and, and, and um, you know, put, put computer softwares or erp etc 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 so it's a it's a journey we went on um, i'd say you know in the last four years or so we've, we've got a, a new cfo has been very very um focused on this um, in that uh, he's put in processes now so as an example um the sales team gets absolutely they get a report on any late payments they know they know exactly where they are uh, they have that instruction, you know, you've got to um, follow up on that. Um, if we're getting concerned, the first step is not to cut them off. What we, we, We've got a couple of customers at the moment where what we do is we say, look, you, you, give, us a, you give us $100 and we will deliver $70 worth of product. So we, we, we don't want to uh, break the relationship if we can avoid it. And and sometimes, look, it, sometimes it's not a question of a customer being difficult, objecting to pay, they've got some short-term problems. And as a long-term supplier, and we want a long-term relationship with them, if we can help them to overcome that problem, uh, we we retain the business uh, and the relationship. Um, Go back to 2008, many of our customers were in financial trouble. And if we just said, you pay us in 30 days or 60 days or whatever, uh, we would have lost the business. Um, but we we worked together. We worked with them through that process and um, have come out the other side with a stronger relationship as a, as a result. So it's not always that someone is deliberately trying to avoid paying you. Um, I think that's important to, uh, to understand.
2: And we're, Mike, we're going through a similar period of disruption at the moment, arguably. Yes. Mm-hmm. Talk a little bit about some of the things that you were able to do or perhaps are doing with customers who who genuinely want to work with you, but who are struggling to find the cash. Mm-hmm. Some of the ways that you can work around that.
1: Well, I mean, I'll tell you what we did. I mean, still we're a relatively small company, so we we moved we moved very very quick at the start of this COVID um, problem, um, and took a lot of actions. Um, so one of them is we. I was worried about supply chain interruption. Um, so we massively took our stock levels up. We wanted to get this, our raw materials into our production plants, get them in, turn it into product. And then we approached all our customers um, to, uh, to try and get them to place bigger orders, place early and bigger orders on the basis that um, you, you they don't want that supply chain interrupted. So if we can get their, them stocked up, um, also <laughs> it means we're getting the cash in because we're invoicing them and we're getting the cash in and they're paying us. Um, we One of the things we were concerned about was our customers um, running into cash flow problems. Um, and we've been monitoring that much, much more closely than we would normally. Uh, and the reality is that has not happened to any great degree. There have been some issues. Um, and, and because we're watching it very closely, we can control it. As I say, by only maybe sending a, a proportion of the payments out as this as, as chemical, but um, it hasn't been too, too big of a problem.
0: How uh, do you know? How do you uh, monitor? How do I? How do you know or monitor what the your customer's cash flow position is?
1: Uh, well, uh, some of them are, are publicly quoted companies so we, we can watch. Um, but we are, say so we're a very high service intensive company. I mean, some of our big customers, we can have 10 or 14 people on the site. So, um, without giving too much away, we, 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 we get a feel for the customer, mm-hmm. um, and of course, we talk to our competitors and, and other suppliers, um, and we get to feel um, uh, you know, what the situation is um, on, on that side uh, and so, so hopefully
2: i mean it 's very interesting to me to, to me, Mike, so you're because these are engineers that are on customer side I mean you' are just yes. salesmen, but at the end of the day they, they understand the chemical processes in detail. So they become part of, of your sort of intelligence gathering mechanism for understanding where a customer is struggling. Well, what, what, what are some of the things that they look for?
1: Uh, well, as I say our customers are big, big industrial sites where there's many, um, many people going on board, going into the site. They've got a good relationship with the, the people on the customer people and also the suppliers that are going in there. Um, so just general talk, you know, uh, or oh, we we're, we're Get, we're getting a bit behind with our payments. How are you doing? Oh, no, we're, we're fine. Okay, well, that, maybe that's my job then. I'm not doing a good, well enough job to, to um, chase up. Um, or no, no, we haven't been paid for six months. Okay, alarm bells are ringing. It's just really it's, a, it's, a, it's a part of the um, intelligence gathering process, I think.
2: Yes.
1: Um, and, and of course, at the end of the day, are we getting paid? I mean, that's what we're clearly, carefully monitoring. You know, the payment was due by a certain time. Um, are, we, are we getting it? Uh, and it is a, it's, it's, that's a discipline. Um, uh, you know, as a salesman, you want the sale. You want the sale uh, and you, you, you tend to think that the job is done. And of course, it's not. Um, a big thing we changed about three, four years ago was the, the um, bonus for the sales guys is also tied to the payments as well. So it's not just a, a sales number um, and, and the job is done. Um, and and, it, and, and it's, it's been an education. It's not, it's not something you can't just put a new policy in, uh, right, here's the written policy, read it, job done. It is an education that takes time and it takes a few painful lessons as well. When suddenly people, someone thought their bonus is less than they thought they were going to get. Well, I didn't fully understand it. Well, you should have understood it. Now do you understand it? So it is uh, an education um, process. Um, because Simon and, does
0: talk about that at, at some length, that you can't just lob a new sales policy on the, on the desk. Did you lose salespeople who said, well, I, I don't accept these new policies? And, and for those listening, what's your advice for how to have these difficult conversations with salespeople who might be used to different circumstances?
1: Well, certainly, no, we haven't lost anybody as a consequence of, of, of that. Um, and... Um, I mean, I say, it's just communication. It's, it's education. We've sat down with the teams, give them some um, basic financial, um, education, um, bit of training, um, uh, and just explained the basic facts. Um, you know, uh, <laughs> I remember drawing a sounds very basic and, and but drawing a picture of a bucket mm-hmm. with a, with holes in it, with a tap, with some water coming in. I said, look, this is our business. And if if we're not overflowing, we've got no profit. And if we've got too many holes, uh, we're gonna run out of cash. So we've got to plug these holes and we've got to get the cash in by opening that tap. And you're turning the tap off if we don't get paid and just simple simple things like that. So it was education, um, a few painful lessons um, and and slowly, not that slowly, but people then get on board and, and understand. I mean, related also back to their own personal finances. Uh, you know, how do you feel if I don't pay you at the end of the month? Oh, this month I'm going to pay you two weeks late. How do you feel? And just some basic things like that is it, I don't think it's over complicated
2: so Mike i you probably don't remember because it's a long time ago, but I talk about something called the virtuous revenue cycle, which starts usually with firmly setting expectations with the customer and so it, can you talk to us a little bit. Let's imagine we have a new relationship with a new customer. Yeah. Um, and you talked about the importance of that binary discussion, you know, price and terms are part of that discussion. So, so how do you deal with that? Do you have a formal policy written down or is it verbal? How, how do you?
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's written down in, in, in what we call a proposal. Uh, all the details will be written, written down. Um, and, and uh, you know, that's discussed and agreed up front in that um, in that document. And I think the key, a key point I think we haven't really touched on, is that um, we're playing a game in a sense. If the customer senses that you are weak, uh, and, and 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 that's not important to you, um, that, you know getting that money in. Um, they will pay someone else first. Um, go back to my my previous company. Uh, I suddenly I remember once I was uh, told by the accountant that a customer had not paid us for nearly one year. And I I said, what do you mean he hasn't paid for one year? I I said, no one's told me. I went and saw the customer. He said, well, you come from a very rich American company. You didn't seem to be bothered. You didn't ask is really the- You didn't ask. Yeah. We we, we didn't ask. Um, And um, we all know what what, what the situation is, you know, uh, people will pay the people that are the most persistent knocking on the door. You know, if there's a certain amount of cash to be released this week, and someone's got to make that decision, um, who who's that guy who keeps phoning me every other day? <laughs> he is going to get paid first. The, the
2: squeaky wheel gets the oil, which yeah. Simon, that's by in fact our uh,
1: slogan at Riyabu. I,
0: I,
2: I tend to talk about it as being love rather than being a nuisance. You know, so, well, that's what. Well,
1: that's why I'm saying. Or. Who was that guy who took me out for lunch last month? Yeah. Well, maybe, yeah. maybe, well, maybe I'll pay him.
0: Better than squeaking. Well, the, the, If you the, can
1: build that relationship, you know, that, okay, you do know that lady, you do know that gentleman, you know their first name, and uh, you've had some interaction, and you can phone them, instead of you're just some voice that they've never heard of, and who the hell are you, you're going to be ahead of the uh, ahead of the queue.
0: Yes. Well, that's why uh, our slogan is, in fact, be first in line to get paid with, right. with yes. A nod to that, that you want to appear on the top of the must-pay pile rather than have your invoice disappear at the bottom of the can-pay pile. Um, But, you know, back to the, I guess there are two other things that you said, Mike, that I'd briefly like to pick up on. The first is uh, in relation to this additional relationship building. Simon talks about the virtuous revenue cycle. You've already talked about that customer love, the customer service aspect that has to come to the fore if you want to get paid on time. For many of those listening, that may seem like a bit of a distraction. They're in the business of making stuff, delivering services. Uh, you know, this idea that oh goodness, now I have to take the finance lady out for lunch, may seem like something that they that's non-core. Can you talk a little bit about how you made that part of the process rather than an extension
1: of it? Well, again, I, I slightly, just to sort of go back on what you said. I don't care what you're doing, whether you're making stuff or not, you're there for one thing, which is to make money. And if you're just making products and you're not getting paid, um, then you're wasting your time. So, so I, I think you, you've got to keep it absolutely at the fore of your mind um, and have that discipline and, and have that discipline. What well, the point is if you have that discipline with your, your, your company and your sales team, the customer soon gets to know who you are and knows that you will be knocking on their door if you don't get paid. And, 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 and so, automatically, the, the, the process is um, sort of self supporting in a sense and, 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 and it works like, like that. I mean, I, I, it wasn't a big cultural change. I say we had to understand why we had no cash, go back to the early days. Since then, everything has been refining how we can um, tighten up the cash flow and we just reduce, reduce our, um, our working capital. Uh, and again, it's not, it's not finished, it's an, it's an ongoing battle, I would say.
2: I had one question and, and something I'm writing about at the moment. In the new Zoom world, are you in any cases using um, digital means like Zoom to have your finance people talk directly to the finance people at the customer, for example? Or the salespeople who can't travel doing it?
1: Um, we're no, we're not, and we, we don't generally get the finance people to talk to the, our customers. We okay. still prefer the salespeople to have that relationship. Um, I'm not I'm not that keen on playing the game of oh, it's not me asking for the money; it's someone else. I, I don't. I think that's shirking your responsibility. To be to be frank. Um, So, but um, come back to your question on zoom. I think, I think, you know, ultimately that's uh, this whole process has opened our eyes to these different tools that are out there. Um, We're certainly using it for training and and for management meetings and things like that. And, and certainly for customer meetings. And I think it's, 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 it's going to be interesting how this develops for us. We've got sort of 330 salespeople out there. Um, Huge cost of travel, um, not only international, but even a local travel. And the customers may actually adopt and be willing to adopt Zoom meetings instead of our people physically traveling to the customer sites. I still believe you need that face to face. I actually believe you need to have a beer with people uh, occasionally, you know, you still need to build that relationship. Um, but if it's interspersed with um, Zoom meetings uh, and that keeps the relationship going, that, I think that's important one of the things we're missing at the moment is that relationship. We're worried that the relationships are getting stretched because we haven't been able to get to many of our customers. Um, and, and these, these, um, video technologies are a way of, of at least bridging that for now. And, and, and it won't, it won't go away now.
0: Finally, Mike, are there any other red flags, own goals, any other pieces of advice that you've experienced, uh, any other things that you might recommend to those of you listening
1: or making sure that you do bring the cash in when it should be? Um, well, I think I think we've covered the cash pretty well. I mean, I i was just thinking back, I mean, I said we've just had our, our 20 year anniversary. So we were reminiscing about, you know, what the things that happened and that. One, one of the things that we were, I think we were very, very lucky. When we started, we were a bunch of friends got together total trust and everything else, but we never had a shareholder agreement. And I look back now and say, "Wow, that was a big risk. As it was, it didn't cause us any problems, but as we got bigger, um, it potentially could have done. And and it was quite interesting how um, as the company grew and became more profitable and I suppose successful, we had um, a little bit of jealousy creep in with some people who maybe had 1% share and said, "Well, how come you've got twenty percent, thirty percent, or whatever? Uh, I'm working just as hard as you, and 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 you've got all this." Um, so I look back and say, "We were lucky that the absence of a shareholder, proper legal documents at that stage, we were lucky that that didn't come back and and bite us." Um, the other thing, sort of looking back over the twenty years, the if you look at the biggest problems we've had. Actually, it hasn't been customers or the business. We sailed through the financial crisis. We're doing fine with COVID-19. The biggest problems we've had had actually been people. Um, For various reasons, people go off track, you know, for for whatever the reasons are. All people. Um, I'm saying the business has been pretty smooth, but every so often, Someone sticks his head up and does something crazy, a a manager in India tried to take over our business um, uh, and that was a big battle. So it's things like that that uh, you you don't expect. Um, The business side has been, I have to say, relatively smooth. Of course, there's a few ups and downs, but um, it's always our our business is a people business. People buy from people. Um, And those people sometimes can also um, go off the rails a little bit.
0: And that's why we always talk about people too, in the context of how
1: you talk to your customer
0: to pay you on time, rather than looking for a technology solution to fix it automatically. So, I mean,
2: the startups, Singapore, where we're sitting, is a huge hub of startups, and there are startups constantly um, uh, being built all the time. And one of the things that we try and do is we try and tell startups don't neglect this side of things, and yet, and yet they almost always do because if you look at the incubators that let's say, for example, banks set up to, to help startups, there's never anything about cash flow. There's everything about communication and product development and borrowing money and and you know, all that kind of stuff.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah. So I mean, I'm doing. So I've joined an angel investing club, um, and doing some investments in. Um, and mentoring with startups. Um and what is what is clear is some of these guys have, have got fantastic ideas, fantastic insights on technology and different things, but have no idea about the business side, no idea about managing the cash, no idea about marketing. Um uh, they're just focused on on this fantastic product that they've uh, they've they've got or they they've developed. Um and that's what's missing. Um so yeah, that that's
2: Yes, that doesn't surprise me at all. Um, that's great. On concluding comments
0: then, uh, any final words? Uh, let's start with Mike.
1: Uh, no, I mean, I'd just say for us, it's been a, it's been a fascinating journey, um, a, a journey where we've learnt a lot. Um, something we haven't quite touched on was I, I, we sold part of the company to a private equity um, business a few years ago. Uh, and that was absolutely the right step at the right time for us because we were at a point where I felt we needed some expert knowledge to come in, um, and, and that's exactly what they've done. They've really helped to tighten the ship and give us um, a direction. They can't help us sell one kilogram of chemical, but we are a much, much more professional company as a result of their involvement. So that, that was a very positive move as well. And you hear a lot of negative things about PE, but that this us has been a very positive thing.
0: And perhaps the next step for our listeners too, Simon, any concluding comments about uh, what to do next?
2: Well, I, I would like to just say one thing. It's perhaps a bit sentimental, which is, Mike, you and I met, you know, we worked together. I was with a partner called Bill Galvin, if you recall, and we actually looked yeah. both at inventory and receivables. Bill sadly died a couple of years ago. But I do I do want to pay tribute, and I just just want, want to state that we dealt not just with receivables, but with inventories as well, mm. and that he taught me a great deal, and I think, I imagine he probably helped you somewhat. Like I know you've moved yeah. on quite
1: stock management perspective. That's right, and we're, stu- we're still fighting on that battle, yes
0: okay (laughs) i will leave you two to fight it out meantime for you watching listening to us please uh, drop your comments uh into the comments box next to this podcast you can also email us service at riabu.com perhaps you have a story to tell about how you struggled to get your invoices paid on time and some of the things that you did in order to make sure that your customers uh, paid when they should have drop us a line service at riabu.com meantime mike grundy from Amazon Papyrus Chemicals. Thank you very much for taking Thank you. the time. Thank
1: you, guys. Cheers. And
0: uh, Simon Littlewood and I
1: are looking forward to jo- you joining us on our next podcast. Yeah.